0: This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Melissa Reuter, who just made a very generous contribution to the show via PayPal, and to Timothy Alcock, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Timothy writes, Having listened now for a number of years, I feel honor-bound to pay back for all your hard work. I really love the episodes that are panel-based, as well as those looking at culture, politics, and the media. So big thanks again to Melissa Reuter and Timothy Alcock, and to everyone else who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show.
1: Wired.com presents... The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy.
0: And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 418 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show we'll be discussing the new Hulu series devs, created by Alex Garland, director of Ex Machina and Annihilation. And this will involve spoilers for the entire show, so just be aware of that. And if you missed it, you should definitely check out our interview with Alex Garland back in episode 147. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Anthony Ha, making his 19th appearance on the show. He covers media, advertising, and pop culture for the news site TechCrunch, where he also hosts the podcast original content. A chapbook of his short stories called Love Songs for Monsters was published by Youth in Decline in 2014. And his short story, Late Train, appeared in the February 2019 issue of Lady Churchill's Rosebud Rislet. So, Anthony, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm excited to be back. The next up, we've got Sarah Lynn Mishner, making her 18th appearance on the show. She's a Ravenclaw, Trekkie maker, feminist who writes at Medium and lives in Connecticut with a Renaissance engineer, a dog, and a bird. So Sarah, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. And also joining us today is Raphael Jordan, making his 11th appearance on the show. He's written over 25 feature films that have premiered on video and cable television, including The Mortal Voyage of Captain Drake, Star Runners, and Vampire Nation. He also co-wrote the new series Salvage Marines, starring Casper Van Dien and Peter Shinkota. So, Raphael, welcome to the show. Always love to be here. All right, so let's start off with Anthony and have you tell us what were your expectations going into Devs.
1: They were very high. Um, I didn't know much about the concept or the show itself, but I am a big fan of Alex Garland. Um, even before he started directing his own films, 28 Days Later, and especially Sunshine or... Probably two of my favorite films of the last few decades. Um, I also really liked Ex Machina. I really liked Annihilation. Um, I also got to interview him when, uh, Ex Machina came out, came out. And he was just such a, you know, smart, but also very unpretentious, surprisingly unpretentious and nice guy. And so I think all of those things together, I, I had really high expectations for the show, even though I knew almost nothing about it going into it.
2: It's funny, you know, I mentioned in the intro there that I, I interviewed Alex Garland, and that was one of the few that I did in person. I think I've only done two, maybe, in person, um, but so it was in, I think, like, the basement of the Four Seasons or something, and he comes in, and I had all these questions. I, wanted, I So I asked him, you know, um, I do want to talk about Ex Machina, which was his new film at the time, but I said, you know, I have a, a lot of other questions I want to ask you, is that okay, about science fiction and stuff? He's like, he's just kind of, like, slouching there. He's like, yeah, man, whatever, Like anything's fine with me, you know, he's, like, so relaxed. <laughs> um but yeah, I thought because I heard you say that um, Sunshine's one of your favorite movies. I guess I'll say you know Annihilation is I think my favorite movie of the last decade. And I haven't seen Sunshine. It's interesting. everyone um, I've talked to about it. Everyone says that for the first half it's a great science fiction movie and then for the second half it's a bad horror movie. And so
1: I've always I never got around to watching it for that reason. I think there's some validity to that and um in fact the, w- one of the funny things about our interview was at one point he mentioned sunshine and he seemed more down on it than I did probably for some of those reasons that you're alluding to uh but I mean I'm also somebody who just is more comfortable I think with uneven movies than a lot of people I'm I'm like really I can still really enjoy a movie if I think it falls apart at the end or or you know starts off weak or or what have you Um, And so to me, I think I'm more able to compartmentalize it. And I don't think the horror movie that it becomes a, I don't think it's half. It's more like maybe a third. And I don't think it's that bad. It's just not as good as what came before it. And what's there is so good that I'm willing to forgive the admittedly pretty formulaic horror stuff.
2: Hmm. I mean, it's interesting, you know, I'd actually forgotten how many things that I liked that he was involved with, you know, he wrote dread. Uh, which is su- surprisingly mm-hmm. good. He wrote, You know, the, actually, I read his novel, The Beach, years ago when I was in Ireland. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was sort, of, I was sort of, as I was doing research for this, I was just remembering, like, oh, yeah, he was involved with all these different things that were great. And so, I mean, I really think of him as, you know, him and uh, Denis Villeneuve are sort of like the standard bearers for intelligent science fiction films that reach a, a large audience um, right now, seems to me.
1: I feel the same way, although I think Villeneuve is somebody who I admire without necessarily having loved any, his fil- any of his films. I feel like I, I watch the movies and I'm like, that was well made and and smart, and I'm glad I saw it. But whereas like Sunshine in particular, and but really all of his films, even Dread, I feel like are movies that that just kind of hit me a little bit harder than any of Villeneuve's films. You didn't love Arrival. I I think partly because I you know had read this the ted chang story and it felt like the thing so many of the things i liked came from the ted chang story so as a film i thought it was pretty good but like the sort of hollywood stuff that was overlaid on top of it particularly at the end i i didn't like as much. again i liked it it just didn't kind of um it, okay. it wasn't like okay. a movie that i sort of thought about no, a lot
2: no, no judgments we're in the circle of trust okay <laughs> um, okay <laughs> uh how about sarah what were your expectations going into devs
3: um, well, I thankfully had not heard of it. Um, I, it was a recommendation, um, from my partner's, um, brother-in-law. And I, you know, as soon as I Googled it for five seconds and realized it was Alex Garland, I was like, Oh yeah, I'm totally on board. We're, hmm. you know, I think we, we like stopped watching, uh, whatever we were watching at that time. So we could start devs and, um, you know, was just really delighted because I feel like, I feel like Garland's work is, is, you know, I, I, I do, I, I talk about a lot of pop culture references with my therapist. And I feel like I bring up Alex Garland more than any other, uh, you know, just because like I talk about, like, like I'm very interested in religion, in cults. And in science fiction. And so that sort of trinity is very much have to do with a lot of, you know, everything from the beach onward. So yeah, I was, I was very happy to put everything down and and start it. And I I loved it.
2: And we can say like you, you used to work for a tech startup, right? And your partner worked at a, I don't know if we can name the company, but a, a recognizable technology company?
3: Oh, we totally can. I mean, okay. he he worked for Apple um, as a senior software engineer in their special projects group on an unnamed product. And he he couldn't even, they didn't even tell him what it was during the interview. He had to, you know, go to the interview not knowing what it's for and do a bunch of math on a whiteboard. And, you know, the interview was something like six hours long um you know they fed him lunch and they he, they went through multiple people and you know um he had to basically uproot his life not having any idea until his first day of work what the actual project was i have no idea what the project was people ask me all the time if he worked on you know because he worked at apple in california oh did he work you know in the spaceship building and i'm like nope because the special project group is sequestered from the rest of the Apple team. You know, um, they obviously try really hard to keep it a secret. And there were weird things where he would come home and be like, yeah, there were like press helicopters with really, really, really zoomed out lenses, you know, <laughs> trying to get images of us as we were coming out of the building. And they had to deal with that stuff all the time. So it's crazy.
2: Well, I didn't actually realize his experience was so much like this TV show.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, nothing happened, but there there were stories that he told, especially after orientation, of you know people who they hired who uh, filled up a hard drive in the middle of the night, flew <laughs> to China, and you know committed uh, um, industrial espionage. espionage. Yeah.
2: So. Wow. Yeah. Okay, well, let's definitely get back into that as we go. But I want to get Raphael in here too. So, Raphael, what were your expectations going into Devs?
4: Well, like everyone else, I'm a big fan of Garland. So uh, I think they were pretty sky high. Um, I make a point of always going into his projects knowing as little as possible because I feel like he's one of the more interesting writer-directors of the past 20 years. Uh, Ex Machina and uh, Annihilation, I didn't know a thing. I just went in cold. And And it's such a great experience when you can actually do that. Um, yeah, I think he's, you know, really interesting. The, the one thing on him, you know, the rap is that, yeah, he has something of a third act problem, but still mm-hmm. it's like, you know, his third acts are usually pretty good. They're just a little odd or not what you'd expect, you know, with the aforementioned sunshine, even 28 wait, 28 days later takes kind of an odd turn in the third act. Um, you know, annihilation was really engaging with the ending was kind of, unsatisfactory but also intriguing i feel like he's always kind of right on the precipice of greatness he's just like a consistently engaging and unlimited potential kind of filmmaker and i consistently give him like an a minus i guess
2: (laughs) well i I think it's noteworthy that this is his you know transition into television after working in film you know feature film for as long i don't know if he's ever done television before um no and i I get the feeling that Part of it was that sort of bad experiences he had had in feature filmmaking do you do you know any background on this
4: well there um you mentioned dread uh he had he wrote that of course, but the word around Hollywood is that he also basically directed it um, and it wouldn't surprise me in the least. I mean all his projects have a very strong sensibility to it. You can really tell it's his work, whether he writes it or directs it like there's always a lot of common through lines, and I do think. His foray into television amplified all his strengths and weaknesses, interestingly. I'm sure we can get into that later, but um, it was a very, you know, interesting project. Uh, I think it probably could have been a movie, you know, maybe it should have been, but I don't know.
2: Well, let me let me read some of the stuff that I came across. So this is a quote from him. Um, he says, uh, my filmmaking career, I've made something, I've given it to a distributor, and they say, we don't want to distribute this. Uh, and he says i i feel like i've already disappointed someone as soon as i turn in the work um and then he says uh basically every film i've ever worked on i just got sick of it i thought maybe film isn't the right space for me basically it's not mainstream so i thought tv might be the right home so there was something where like with ex machina i think the um the original distributor didn't want to distribute it he mentioned and then with um annihilation it never got distributed theatrically outside the u.s i think um which he was really, right, it really went straight upset to about. Netflix, right yeah, so I guess Anthony, do you know anyth- anything you-, you can add there?
1: no, I mean that's that's basically all I know is that it doesn't seem like they're, it, the, I, the projects don't seem high profile enough that they're the sort of legendary, tumultuous productions, but there is this sort of subtext for almost all of his films where it seems like there was at least some tension.
2: Yeah, this is another thing he says I have had in the past huge battles, real screaming rows over the final cut. Um, so so yeah, I mean that's really, you know, too bad cuz like I said he's one of my favorite filmmakers and he's his films are so intelligent and philosophical and, mm-hmm. you know, I really wish there was more science fiction like it. Um and uh it's just it, it sounds like, you know, part of the reason there isn't aren't more films like his is because you know, of these sorts of conflicts with, uh, you know, it's, it's not what distributors think is going to sell, I right. guess, and may, they may be right, but. He's um, basically just too good
4: for this world right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, it's all about franchises and sequels and reboots, and he's actually making original, thought provoking science fiction. It's such a rarity, uh, and it's great, but yeah, it's an uphill battle, I'm sure.
2: Yeah, and so even, I mean, stuff like, um, ex machina, I mean, just how many. Future films do you get that would go into thought experiments like mary in the black and white room i mean it's pretty pretty much just him um but um all right well anyway it's that's kind of sad but um well hopefully now that he's we're talking about him on geek's Guide to the galaxy there'll, there'll be a huge <laughs> surge in popularity um but so so let's go back to sarah and have you just tell us kind of like what were your initial impressions when you started watching devs
3: um, well, I was pretty much sold from the first episode on and, you know, a lot of it is I love his sense of pace. I absolutely love it. Like I, it feels like a novel and it feels like a documentary at the same time. Like it's not, you know, he is very moody and evocative and there's so much attention given to place and feel. Um And, you know, to me it felt like he was filming these characters around San Francisco You know, and I recognized so many filming spots, even though half the film, I think, was shot on a soundstage in, like, London or something. um, The on-location stuff was just so, like, that is what San Francisco is like. You know the names of the homeless guys that hang out, you know, outside of your building. You talk with them. You notice who speaks to them poorly. Um, Stuff like that. All the little touches. You know, everybody is... You know, second generation Chinese, second generation, you know, Korean, American. And there's just so much richness about what it's, what it was like that it was almost like triggering, but in a good way, I got nostalgic a couple of times, which is rare since I really didn't enjoy my seven years in Silicon Valley (laughs) on the whole. So, but yeah, I was, I was sold, uh, you know, from the first episode on. And, and I, I think that one of the things about his work is that, you know, I notice when I watch stuff how easily tempted i am to do other things how how easily i am to you know multitask and that you know it's harder to do obviously when you're in a movie theater because you don't want to be rude but when you're sitting in front of a small screen it's really you know obvious how much it captures your attention and the fact that i was never like i was just glued to the tv the whole time i was just completely under like under a spell
2: well, well, you mentioned, Sarah, the pacing. And, and Raphael, on Facebook, you described the pacing to me as, quote, glacial. Do you say <laughs> that in a... Is that in a bad way or or not?
4: You know, I, I try not to make a judgment about that. Um, I think, like, I'm a fan in general of methodically slow-paced movies and shows. I, I do think, you know, sometimes I have certain friends that won't be into it. So I, I kind of preface that saying, you know, it's a pretty slowly-paced show. Um, but it is rewarding. I feel like... It was probably stretched out a little. I mean, it's a it's a great show, and I think contrary to his pattern, it kind of got better as it went. Um, I thought the ending was spectacular. Um, but it is very slow, and it's not entirely engaging in those first few episodes, at least not to me. Like, I almost found myself checking out, but I, I just knew I had to keep going.
2: Yeah, well, I I, I definitely thought it, the pacing was deliberate. I mean, I I liked it, but I, it's definitely the sort of thing I would warn just the average person about before giving it a wholehearted recommendation. Um, and it, it was making me think of, um, you know, Anthony and Sarah were both on our panel about pretentious movies. And this has <laughs> a lot of the things that I um, identified as, as sort of hallmarks of pretentious movies, the long shots, the kind of characters with dramatic colored lighting, the weird music, the um, like sure. shots of nature and stuff like that. Um, I wouldn't call this pretentious Maybe a little bit, but it does have some of that to it, but, um, I know so Anthony, if we had brought this up, if this had been out in time for our pretentious panel, what do you think about this as a pretentious uh, show?
1: I would have embraced it, and I would have pointed to it as exhibit a in my argument that pretentious and bad are not the same thing, and that mm-hmm. I mean, I agree that like a lot of this the sort of the stylistic. Um, flourishes and the pacing are, you know, I think if if you're not sort of on the same wavelength as the show, they can just seem indulgent or just dragging things out. Uh, I mean, one thing that I keep coming back to is just that opening credit sequence and how it's different in each episode, but it is like clearly meant to be this sort of mix of of kind of arty, but also building this feeling of dread, especially as the show goes on and I think because I, I felt like it was really effective at create creating the sense of dread, all of that stuff, I mean, I think there's probably a few things that didn't work, but on the whole, I was um, on board for it. But I, I could imagine that if you were a little bit more suspicious of the show, you found, you know, you didn't find the ideas it was exploring quite as compelling, then it could get agonizing and annoying fairly quickly.
4: Yeah, I, I love the overall vibe of it. I thought the visuals were arresting and the haunting, foreboding sense of it was great. Like the atmosphere was great. But in terms of the pace, um, I'll quote Vulture. They, this is what they had to say. It, it struggles on that front. It moves very slowly and it's understated, extremely serious sensibility can make it feel even slower to be almost hypnotic. And the problem with hypnosis is it tends to make you sleepy. My girlfriend could not stay <laughs> awake in this show. <laughs>
1: I would say that the first episode is pretty arresting, at least for me, because it it you know starts by focusing on the devs project and Sergey getting po- this character Sergey getting pulled in. But I agree that in subsequent episodes, when it's about um, you know Lily investigating what's happened, then it the pace really slows down. I mean, but the uh, I mean the episodes are full though of murder,
2: kidnapping, torture. Like, I mean, it has you know. F- Fights. I mean, there's all sorts of conventionally dramatic things. Um, you know, to, yeah. I feel to like there's so
3: much there. With I mean, the thing about whether or not it's pretentious is that it's sincere. Like it is every every line of poetry that they are reciting. You know, and using voiceover for every um, you know every shot of of the greenery and the the sort of contrast between nature and this very. Uh, severe glass and metal building that they, you know, have created. Um, all of that serves the story. And, and I think that I, I've seen a lot of movies where they try to throw stuff like that in as icing on the cake to sort of make it, you know, give it a veneer of art. And with this, every, every scene, every bit just feels completely intentional and completely natural. Um, and there, there isn't anything pretentious about it, but there is certainly a lot that's obviously very intelligent about it. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, let, let's just say what it's what it's about. So yeah, so basically, there's a um, a tech company in San Francisco that has developed quantum computers, and they have this secret project called Devs that nobody in the company except the people working on it knows what it is. And um, our main character is is named Lily. And her boyfriend, who and she works at the company along with her boyfriend Sergey, and he gets, um, as we I think we said, sort of um, pulled onto the dev's project and disappears. And then the first, you know, three or four episodes are involved with her trying to solve the mystery of what happened to him. Um, and so, so Sarah, so, <laughs> so it's what was it like then? Like, say more about what it was like for you and your partner watching this. Um, that you had kind of this sort of personal experience with this sort of somewhat similar situation.
3: Yeah. I mean, it was, it was like a documentary to me. It felt like a really artistic documentary and I I really can't, you know, I can't describe uh, unless you, you've actually spent time living in San Francisco working in these industries. Like, you know, a lot of them are very culty. A lot of them are, you know, very much centered around the personality and the, ideologies of these you know tech inventors who may have created one really cool idea and now they're being sort of treated as gods you know you look at, like, at zuckerberg and how he's handling this this thing of facebook being used as a weapon and he has detached himself from it completely and he has decided that you know that that the system that he created is some sort of form of pure democracy. And that's not true. It's bullshit. And he has bought it so that he doesn't have to apply himself. He doesn't have to take responsibility for how this tool is being used. Um So, you know, it was just, it's one of the things that made it so engrossing for us because we've, you know, it, it was extraordinary, the level of detail and the level of, Whoever, you know, I'm I'm not actually sure whether Garland himself wrote this alone or whether it was a team, but they absolutely had a grasp of what that culture is like.
2: Well, let's talk about so there's this character, Forrest, who's the head of uh, this, this company is called Amaya, and he's definitely presented as a megalomaniacal kind of passionate oddball sort of character um i guess anthony you cover the tech industry as well right what did you think of of this forest character did that did that ring true to you
1: he did yeah i mean there's sort of a couple different elements of forest and and i think this also reflects kind of the evolution of the show as a whole that i think in its early stages seems not in not exclusively but to an extent trying to create this portrait of san francisco and of the tech world and then i think as it goes on um there's, it becomes more and more about, I think, this specifically exploring the, these ideas about determinism. And similarly, I think for us at the beginning, in some ways, feels like, um, like a, a way to sort of portray some of the, uh, the things that are not so great about tech CEOs and founders. And one moment that I, I just loved and really captured something for me was the first time we see him it's at this lunch meeting <laughs> and he has 15 minutes and he's got this salad and he yeah. literally just like starts puts his hand in and starts shoveling the <laughs> you know the arugula or whatever into his mouth because you know it's like this it's just fuel to him and and why bother to enjoy it or spend any more time on it than necessary and i just thought that was such a great character establishing yeah. moment and we both and laughed
3: can- out loud in that moment yeah. <laughs>
1: I think it be and you know, I think that that side of him is in some ways tied to the sort of megalomaniacal maniacal pursuit of devs. I don't think they're like completely separate parts of his personality, but I think as the show goes on, it becomes much more about Forrest as this haunted father and husband as opposed to Forrest just as this asshole tech CEO, although I don't think that that side of him never completely disappears either.
2: Well, yeah, and it's, you know, he's a billionaire, but he's kind of dressed kind of shabby and needs a haircut and,
1: you know, obviously is
2: not spending his money on luxuries or, you know, consumer things. So that's kind of interesting. But so, so Raphael, um, I don't know how much, do you ever make it up to Northern California? Like, uh, mm-hmm. do you have any, do you have any intersection with the tech, tech community?
4: Um, my brother is actually a programmer up in Silicon Valley. So just a little. You know, just by association, I go up there and visit for the
2: holidays. <laughs> mm. So, so what did you think of this like devs campus? Mm. They're, they're, they're sort of weird culture and stuff like that. You know, I, I'd be
4: lying if I didn't say I found it on some level appealing, but it's probably just because I miss <laughs> college and, and being on <laughs> campus of any kind. I've always kind of been uh, fascinated by, you know, uh, any kind of corporate campus just because I work from home, probably. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it was interesting in that it was a very, friendly and also a foreboding place and I mean, you know, she had friends there there was that woman anya and it certainly seemed like a cool place but also gosh that statue it makes you wonder how anyone would work there it was really creepy you know
2: <laughs> yeah know, yeah I mean- so, so so let's explain so yeah so the the founder um forest his young daughter had died years previously and so the company is named after her and there's this gigantic statue of her as a little girl that, you know, looms over the whole complex. Um, and the, I don't know, the, I don't want the, the plot gets very, very complicated. And I don't know how much time I want to spend going through all of it. So maybe just like, like, I'll just jump ahead a little bit. And just suffice to say that um, we eventually discover that the secret devs project is using these quantum computers to gather up a bunch of data and then using that data to extrapolate backward and forward in time. So basically building a model of reality that's basically perfect, we're told, I think down to the, like, even maybe subatomic level. Um, and so you, so they, they know exactly what's happened in the past. They're able to, you know, even look back at the crucifixion and, and see it, you know, because you know, the idea is that because of cause and effect, if you have a, a big enough data set, you, you can figure out what the causes must have been for everything and what the effects will be of, of everything and so they're able to look into the future uh, as well which becomes more and more important leading into the the last you know second half of the season um but so uh, so Sarah what did you think of the uh, of that what did you think when you when you saw found out that that was sort of the uh, the central idea of the show um
3: it reminded me I mean, I mentioned that I am super interested in, uh, religion and cults and everything. And I, uh, spent 17 years in a, in a small American town that was super, you know, sort of, uh, this idea of, oh, this is a utopia. Um, and of course there was a dark underbelly to that utopia. Um, and I was raised religious and, um, I was raised Presbyterian and Presbyterians. Uh, the hardcore Presbyterians are very interested in this idea of predestination, um, <laughs> and it is a really sick thing in a lot of ways because it is used in that religion, uh, from what I've seen, uh, as an excuse to treat people poorly. Um, you know, this idea that there are some people who are ordained by God and everyone else is not. And so, you know, the whether or not there's even any validity to that is irrelevant because when you look at how that an idea like that is handled within the human brain, it's not handled well. It means that it becomes a form of prejudice. And uh, so the people who I knew who were hardcore Calvinists were some of the most frightening people that I knew growing up um, in you know in this sort of denomination. Um, and so I love how often science fiction will sort of explore the same concepts as religion. Um, you know, from the other side of it, from, from, from the opposite side of it, in a sense. Um, and so it was super appealing to me, uh, to explore that without all of the, you know, both in the sense that Forrest himself was basically a religious person, right? He, he was, just completely believed that he was correct about this determinism thing and unwilling to uh, embrace any new information that would challenge that because of what happened, you know, to him. And he was sort of haunted by this experience. So I was just totally fascinated by that.
2: Well, yeah. And just to clarify that, so, so he was responsible for his daughter's death and his wife's death. Because he was sort of like insisting that his wife talked to him on the phone while she was driving, and she ended up going through a stop sign and, and getting hit by yeah. another car. And so, and and so, he's sort of obsessed with this idea of determinism. Because if everything was always going to happen that way, it's not his fault, and nothing is anyone's fault. Um, yeah. And 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 so, that can
3: give people this terrifying sense that nothing has meaning, you know, or the the timeline you're in. You, you just, you just got, you know, sort of stuck in this shitty timeline. And that's a really hard thing to process. And it's, it's a lot of what you go through when you go through trauma counseling. You know, you talk about why did X happen to me and not to, you know, why didn't this happen when I was, when I was younger? Why didn't this happen when I was older, when I could handle it or something like that? And so there's this idea that you do think about stuff when you're, when you've gone through some sort of trauma, you think about, you know, why me? And so if there is this multiverse out there, where not only did, you know, is there a version of you that's happier in a different timeline, and then it becomes, well, why am I in this timeline and not in that one? And It's a very sour kind of truth. And I could see that somebody like Forrest would have a really hard time with that.
2: And I think the show is worth watching. I mean, for lots of reasons, but it would be worth watching just to me just to see the scene where he's sort of walking down the street, and you see all the different timelines unfolding yes. at, behind mm-hmm. him where his wife and kid would have been fine. And yeah. um, it's just really, really, really visually striking and really, really powerful. But what you're saying, Sarah, about, you know, connecting this dev system to religion is something that the show does very explicitly. Like in the trees before you get to the lab, there's like little halos around all the trees. And oh, we eventually yeah. find out that, that devs is actually kind of a little joke and that it actually spells out deus, you know, the mm-hmm. uh, Latin word for God. Um, Anthony, do you want to jump in there? Like, what, what did you think about the, the way that this show kind of combines science and religion?
1: Um, I, I guess to me, the, the religious side of it, I mean, was certainly there. Um, I think what engaged me more was just the exploration of this idea. Um, and the, that essentially, I mean, I think Sarah was talking about it in, in sort of the context of like, like predestination. And I think they're related, I, determinism and predestination are sort of related ideas, but like slightly separate. And, and particularly to me, what was fascinating was this idea of, of free will and, and the lack of free will. And, um, the idea that essentially, you know, that, that it made me think about how almost any other piece of fiction, because I think you could argue that for, fiction to be compelling you have to believe that characters can make choices and part of what drives devs is the question is can we make choices and and just to like the idea that you could go for eight hours and just really explore that idea and take it seriously um i that was part of what i just loved about the show so much and i just couldn't think of anything else i mean there's certainly again things that have like time loops and fate but but something that just on some level you know just pauses that like no like no one can make any choices they're all just sort of acting out the the, you know this predetermined programming and and part of this larger system i found like really horrifying but also really compelling and in fact when you said that um you know it would be worth the show would be worth it for this one scene for some reason i just immediately assumed that you were going to to talk about um the scene where out the allison pill character lays out Basically, the, the concept of the show to Lily mm-hmm. and, and talks about the devs project. To me, like, I mean, I love the, the, the scene that you're talking about with Nick Offerman. But for me, for me, I think the standout is just, um, Katie, Alison Pill's character, just sitting down and being like, okay, this is why we believed in this deterministic universe. And this is how the dev system work. And like, to me, that is just like such an amazing piece of writing.
2: Yeah. yeah, well, that's that's great. But the other the other scene I thought you were going to mention was where they um they're all they're having kind of a, a meeting in front of this big screen that projects the dev simulation, mm-hmm. and they have it go one second into the future and all realize that they have no oh, yeah. choice but that's to enact amazing. what the what the yeah. their avatars on the screen are doing. And that's got to be one of the scariest scenes I've ever seen. And immediately they're like, "Turn it off! Turn it off! This is freaking mm-hmm. me out too much." And I agree. I think the show does a better job of just dramatizing the issue of free will versus determinism um than anything I've ever seen. Um and also the- explaining, you know, multiverse versus single timeline and stuff. But um Raphael, you want to go ahead. Oh sure.
4: Those were some great scenes that you just mentioned. I actually thought uh someone was going to mention the scene at the dam between Katie and Lyndon. Mm-hmm. I thought that was exceptionally powerful the way she just basically boxed him into that non-choice, you know. Yeah. Um Yeah, I thought the whole, you know, determinism versus free will thing was obviously a fascinating topic. I've always been – I've always actually found some comfort in the thought. I guess I'm a little like Forrest. I don't really believe in free will. Um, So I was definitely along for that ride. I'll tell you the one thing – that I'm starting to be a little wary of as a storytelling convention, though, was the entry point for the story. I feel like far too many sci-fi stories are basically centered around a murder, and that tends to be the least interesting aspect. You know, I don't know if you've been watching Snowpiercer or if you saw Altered Carbon, but it's just a cliche I've started to notice, and I'm starting to dread it a little.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Well, because you can see how I kind of skipped over all the thriller stuff, um, yeah. <laughs> which, which is good. I mean, but I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely to me less interesting than, than the high concept idea of the dev system. Let me just explain that thing about Linden at the dam, um, in case anyone didn't actually watch this. Um, so, so based, and this is toward the end of the show, but, but, but so basically, Linden is this genius teenager who, um, has made significant advances on the devs, to the devs technology and, um, and, and gets kicked off the project for, Promoting the many worlds interpretation, when, as we said, Forrest, who's leading the project, is who's in charge, is so dead set on on it not being a, a many worlds uh, interpretation. And so, so this this scene at the dam, um, Lyndon is trying to get back into the project and is talking to Katie, who's the other person running the project. And Katie says, "If you balance precariously at the edge of this dam, uh, I'll let you back on the project." And show to me that you really believe in the many worlds interpretation because, you know, in some – because there's a chance that you'll fall and there's a chance that you won't fall. But if the many worlds interpre- interpretation is correct, there will be versions of you that don't fall and all those versions will be able to go back on the project. And so uh, so Lyndon does this and falls, um, falls and dies. And all the versions that we see fall. So mm-hmm. I don't know – it, what we were if we were supposed to take away from that what we were supposed to take away from that if that was just kind of visually cool or or what i don't that know it was very curious
4: any- indeed uh, to be honest i was anticipating that she was going to push him for some reason it just felt like it was leading up to that especially when you saw him falling just time after time we never saw a version where he survived
3: well she manipulated him into and in, she pushed him intellectually and you know mm-hmm. i think that that scene is so haunting and so well done in part because it shows how just totally immoral, uh, Allison's, you know, the actress, actress's name is Allison, uh, Katie's character is like, uh, she was a fascinating character. Um, and you kind of, you know, throughout the, 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 the piece, you're sort of like, is she as bad as Forrest? Is she a little bit better than Forrest? Um, and at the end, I, I personally came to the conclusion that she, you know, is sort of, Um, a very detached kind of evil. And, you know, it's not just that that kid, um, you know, would have decided or would have gone over that wall. It's that she was part of that conversation and she was the one who gave him the idea to, to climb over that ledge, put himself in danger. And she did that knowing, you know, so not being able to detach from your own role in things, not being able to, recognize yes he he did die in each of these but i was still the one in each of these realities who you know dared him to do it basically on this false premise this thing that he wanted uh rather adorably and so it's really heartbreaking
2: well but so we're we're led to believe though that she had looked she had used the dev system to look ahead to the future and had seen this moment and so really had no choice but to enact, you know, enact things exactly we're led the way to, they went. Well,
3: we're led to question that. We're led to question whether or not she had a choice. And so, you know, as an audience member, I'm looking at it and I'm going, well, of course she had a choice. And having seen all of that, like the, the one thing that I think they didn't do a good enough job covering in this show, and I think my one criticism um, is that if you see yourself – one minute in the future or whatever like that say, that scene we discussed saying holy shit and you see yourself saying holy shit you're going to say something other than holy shit it's just the natural human response to new information and you know in that split second what you would have said is no longer what you you know like the the, the fact the knowledge of of events has to have some um balance on on the decisions that we make. And so I feel like they kind of cheated in that where they just decided that that wasn't a thing uh and they decided it was a thing in her only in Lily and that that she was special because she had that ability but in reality I think most of us have that option and for her you know she could have said to um to to the kid um I, name is escaping me but she in the car yeah she could have explained to him exactly what was going to happen and truly left it, you know, up to him and said, look, you know, I have seen all of these options. This is exactly what goes down. You know, do you want to continue with this?
4: Well, there's kind of a big question here, too, though, that we haven't delved into um, about by the end. David, can we talk about how, in, you know, essentially the simulation and how they upload into it?
2: No, no. Let's 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 uh, stick with not up to you know. Yeah. So so Sarah alluded to there's this part where where there's a surprising thing that happens with Lily making a choice. But let's uh, let's um, set that aside for the moment and just stick with this idea that um what what do we think about the way that the show portrays a deterministic universe and do we buy it? Um. So Anthony, what do you think about what Sarah is saying here about she just doesn't buy the idea that if you watched what's going to happen to you in one second, that you wouldn't be able to deviate from that?
1: I think that the show does answer that. I mean, I I, I think that's maybe a little bit of a cheat. I think that's probably a fair word for it in the sense that, you know, um, they, they sort of stack, that they, they create a sort of dramatically satisfying, but maybe not intellectually robust response to that. But I, I would say that in general – what's happening is that the foreknowledge is incorporated into the prediction is that like part of like knowing what's going to happen is part of what makes it happen essentially. And and I think that's essentially why, you know um, that's that scene that we're talking about where they get the one second ahead plays out the way it does. That's why Lily ends up going to the, um, you know, devs facility at the end is, is again, because that, that part of what brings makes those things happen is the foreknowledge.
2: Right. It just it seems like a little bit. I mean, I really liked the the way it portrays this deterministic universe and the sort of the horrifying uh, consequences of that. But it does seem a little bit of a cheat. Well, it's or, or like a dramatic contrivance to me that, like, Willie, um, you know, is told that she's going to go to this, um, to the to the Dev's lab at the climax of the story, where like basically we know she's going to die. Um, and so she has every incentive not to do it. And then events conspire to make her want to go there. But it's just hard to believe that if everyone in the world watched themselves on the dev thing, devs thing, and saw themselves dying, uh, that they would all go to that fate. Because it seems like even if the prediction is is accurate, you still have to want to do the things that it's showing you doing. And, you know, could could the universe contrive circumstances to make you want to meet your end in every case? It seems a little hard to believe.
1: Or would the predictions just end up being very different because, you know, everyone then most people would not behave in that way and they'd try to avoid all these, you know, possible deaths?
4: I feel like the dark implication, though, is that each level further down you go, the people probably have less agency and free will. I mean, Lily was special in that universe because she had probably, I mean, the implication by the end is that she's already lived through it, maybe multiple times or infinite times because uh, the events reset but the characters that she's with at the end have even less free will than they had the first
2: time around but we can get into that more later <laughs> um but so so i mean rafael you were saying that you don't believe in free will right so how do you respond to 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 sarah do, do, like, do you think that people would be able to deviate from if, if they're watching a one second in the future film about themselves
4: well, it was a clever trick of filmmaking he did there with the one-minute thing. I think, to Sarah's point, he probably realized it was a can of worms. If you do a minute or five minutes into the future, you're right. You should be able to essentially change the outcome just by having foreknowledge of it. But with the one-second delay, it just wasn't enough time, and that was pretty eerie and effectively done. Um, but I think you know, otherwise it just speaks to the fact that the events are locked in because they're in a system. And it's just a system within a system within a system, as he, as Forrest alluded to. I mean, and to that end, it kind of reminded me of Duncan Jones and Source Code, um,
2: if that makes sense. Um. Well, but I think the thing. I mean, one of the impl- or one of the possible implications is that, you know, I mean, and this is sort of how they, they present it. But but just that you, you know, the, your future life is just like a a movie, and you mm-hmm. can't change what happens in your future life any more than you could change what happens in a movie. And you just have the illusion that you can, but that right. if it actually came to it, you would discover that, oh, actually, I thought I was in control of my actions, but I'm actually just not. And, and, the, and the illusion is broken by, you know, by this machine.
3: I feel like maybe one of the, the things that, that I was trying to get at earlier is that I actually feel like part of the point, part of the moral point of the show that they're tr- they were actively trying to make is that – one of the things you can do to be good is to rebel against the script you were given, and I think people like Allison delight in taking that script and saying, "Well, there's nothing I can do. This has occurred," and they take comfort in it. They take, you know, a sense of of uh, of of solidity from it, and it allows them to not have to worry about you know uncertainty and all of the things that you know we we choose to to you know, struggle with that that people, for instance, who reject religion, uh, embrace, they embrace the mystery, they embrace the the questions, they don't need to have those things answered. But people like Allison and Forrest want to embrace what they've been told is the script so that they don't have to have that pressure of deviating it from. So I feel like what they were saying is that Lily, and like the homeless guy character made choices against their programming, and that in doing so, they you know, chose the morally correct uh, choice.
2: Yeah, I, I just want to emphasize again that the character's named Katie. Uh, I'm sure Allison is a very nice person. We do not mean to.
3: <laughs> I, I completely way. love her as an actress, so <laughs> I keep thinking of her as Allison.
4: <laughs> Isn't it interesting that she's had a pretty big year between this and Picard? She has. Her always seems involved in AI. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I,
3: Actually,
1: I would she, say that I found her character here much more believable and consistent than I did in Picard. Mm.
2: I agree. with that. I actually, she's the um, she was the drummer in Scott Pilgrim versus the World. I don't know if you know oh, that, wow. but uh, yeah, she's been in movies for a long time. Um, but so yeah, so I guess let's get to this thing at the you know so 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 yeah so so Lily, I don't know how coherent this is if you haven't seen the show. I, I apologize, but so so basically, <laughs> like like Lily um ends up going to Devs to to take revenge for um the death of a loved one. Uh, even though she knows that this is what the machine predicted she was going to do, but at this point she doesn't care. And so, um, uh, so Forrest sits her down and ends up, you know, showing her a film of what she's going to do in just a couple minutes and shows that she's going to kill him and she's going to die in the process. And so then, um, and this is all just amazingly mesmerizing to me. Um, but then the way it plays out is she actually is able to make a choice not to do that. Um, which is shocking and is the first, as far as we know, violation of just causal determinism in this world at all. Um, So, Anthony, what did you think
1: about that twist there? It's funny because I think, you know, when you summarize it and, and think about it in conventional storytelling terms, it almost seems inevitable that, oh, of course, you know, somebody rejects the script and steps out, you know, steps out of the system in a special in some way. But, in the moment, it is genuinely shocking, because as far as I can tell, all the evidence of the preceding seven and a half episodes suggest that the devs project works and everything that we've seen is what's going to happen. So So in that moment, it is I just remember like clutching my head and like shouting at the television because <laughs> I really did not expect it. I really thought that they were I, I knew that I was like, well, you can't it's not going to be dramatically satisfying if it's literally just acting out a scene that we've already seen. But I also don't know how else they could do it. And and I thought that, um, well, so, and, and I mean, then we get into the question of like, what did it actually mean that she exercised choice? And and, and I think it, there's a lot of different ways you can interpret that. Um, To me, what I found the most interesting, although I don't think this is actually what they meant, but she uses this line, we're outside your simulation now. Or I forget, maybe, I don't forget if she uses the word simulation, but. She uses you know, the word system. Me, system. We're outside your system now. Yeah. And to me, that was like the most part of the, the, the more compelling idea was less about whether or not determinism is an accurate model of the universe and more can a computer system ever fully capture the complexity of that system. And, and to me, it was, it was in part a suggestion that, you know, maybe everything is determined, but, um, you know, that doesn't mean the computer can accu- accurately represent that. Again, I don't know that that's necessarily where they were going with it, but that was more interesting than it seemed like it really then veered into this sort of like almost chosen one kind of dialogue. Yeah. Like, You're special, Lily. You're the one who can make a choice. And I was like, mm, I'm not so crazy about that. I mean, the one other thing I did think was very interesting was, of course, that then the contrast between lily embracing the idea of making a choice and then the other programmer character Stuart, who you know completely abdicates responsibility for for choice um and and that you know it's very clearly implied that that he's essentially telling himself a comfortable lie
2: yeah no i completely agree with you that i i was not crazy about this twist i mean like in the moment it's amazing but then and 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 the initial my initial thought was oh like the um, Amaya—they just this is their hubris, and they thought their system was perfect, but actually, it wasn't perfect. But then, yeah, it sort of starts to seem more like no. Willie just has this like Neo from the Matrix-like ability that no one else has ever had before—to um, to have free will. And, and that just seemed—I I really hate that kind of trope in, in science fiction where it's like there's some like love or some special quality of the human spirit that enables you to defy the laws of physics and stuff like that. But so, see, David, I, I think that was very purposeful.
4: I think that was essentially highlighting the fact, okay, look, there's no way to talk about this without talking about the other thing. But when she resurrects, and she's, you know, hanging out with Jamie, and she talks to Forrest again in inside the computer, uh all those people are simulated. They're just... They don't have free will. Like Their lives will just unfold because they're not actually real. I think the implication is she was the only real person that we were watching the entire show because she had already come down a level from the higher level,
2: if that makes sense. Hmm. So so your interpretation is that she was in a, in a dev simulation this whole time from the Absolutely. beginning of
4: the show? Oh, yeah. I think that's entirely the implication if you watch the first episode and the last few minutes of the last episode.
2: Okay. What, 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 if I, I didn't watch the first episode again, so if I were to rewatch the first episode, what would I see that would make me think that?
4: Well, the way it plays out is almost the same, but there are some deliberate differences, which I found really interesting. Um, the, just the fact that uh, Sergey's personality was a little different inside the simulation, it wasn't an exact replica. Um, he says something different to the guy in the stoop, he's a little bit more agitated. Um you know, uh, the fact uh, there is oh, the fact that Anya, the blonde woman, uh, doesn't have prosthetic legs inside the simulation. I think these little key details probably change each time, and they're just clues that essentially all the characters populating the simulations don't actually have free will. they must stick to the script, and I think in essentially by Lily being the only one immune to that, that's the implication is that we were watching a level of the simulation the entire show.
3: But I feel like they were actually just trying to say or that all of that that you just mentioned is in support of the sort of multiverse idea. It doesn't support, to me, the idea that she was in a simulation the whole time.
2: Yeah, I, I think I would have to go back and rewatch it. But um, I don't know. Anthony, do you have any opinions on that?
1: I definitely was sort of thinking about that possibility. Um, I did not go back and and rewatch the first episode, um, but it it definitely felt like it had raised that question. I guess the other, and and it sort of, the the finale did also seem to touch on like. Let
2: let me ask a question. So, hmm. in the, so so basically, yes, so Lily and Forrest end up dying anyway. And then they get put into a into the dev simulation where they're going to live happy lives, and we see a repeat of the first episode, but with changes, suggesting that Lily still remembers t- at some level, mm-hmm. or maybe completely what what just happened to her. So if you go back and watch the beginning of the the whole show, she's standing at that window, right? It's the same mm-hmm. thing. I don't. It, d- is there any indication that she remembers stuff from a previous iteration? If you watch the for the show from the very beginning. You're
4: asking? Yeah, I guess not.
3: Cuz I watched I watched the whole uh, series twice, each episode twice. And I watched the go. first episode uh, again with the, you know, benefit of having seen the finale. And yeah, I mean there isn't any evidence that I was able to pick up on that she, but I think it's less of a literal thing and it's more of they want you to question well, if, it, if if our reality can be simulated, then maybe that's more evidence that it's possible that our reality is a simulation in the first place, you know, which is also a very popular idea in sure. science fiction.
4: Because they were definitely shining a light on that with a few key quotes. Mm-hmm. I mean, Alison Pill's character said existence and the simulation are indistinguishable when she was talking to the senator at the end. Right, uh, and, and at one point, Forrest had said something. I, I'm going to misquote it. But a box within a box ad infinitum, you know, something to that effect.
2: So so it, when it restarts, like she's standing looking out the window and then Sergei says, like, What's wrong? and she says like, I just had a nightmare or something like that, right? There's is there there's nothing does, do they have a conversation at all or like that? Yeah, they do.
4: Yeah. He, the he asks her if she had a bad dream or something, and she's she says she's not sure.
3: Well, but she remembers everything. And she and Forrest are the only two people in this new reality who were given those memories intact and and he even explains in a scene you know that um Katie's character puts you know that that, that she gave them their memories up until the last moment and so they right. remember dying both No no them. no
2: but uh, but I'm saying at the very very beginning of the show the very first scene do they have a conversation about I just had a nightmare? No. I don't recall unfortunately. Okay. 'Cause if there 'cause if there's nothing, I don't know you know, if there's nothing at the very beginning indicating that this is somehow a redo for her, then I'm not sure how strong the evidence is that she was always in a simulation. Although that the thing you said about the box inside the box at infinitum is kinda interesting.
4: Yeah. I feel like it's also just kind of inherent to this sort of storytelling, like the thirteenth floor or something. Once you I feel like that that's why the Matrix never quite went there. There was the real world and the simulated world. Once you imply an additional simulation then it's just turtles all the way down right
2: (laughs) there's no way to know well well yeah that's i mean that's you know one of my favorite books is philip k dicks the three stick Model of palmer eldridge and that's the whole idea of the book is that once you enter a simulation that's indistinguishable from from reality how do you ever know if you've gotten out of it again Uh inception Um, (laughs) yeah 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 But, yeah, I just got
4: strong source code vibes at the very end. I mean, maybe that was unintentional or coincidental. But when she reunites with Jamie, it felt like, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal reuniting with uh, Michelle Monaghan. I don't
2: know. Mm -hmm. Well, so, 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 Raphael, you said you thought the ending was great or like the best part of the Mm -hmm. show. I thought the ending was not as like the point. I thought the show was basically perfect up until the point where she throws the gun away. And everything that happens after that is kind of like, this is fine, but it's like, it feels not as good to me as the rest of the show.
4: Well, I Uh, suppose what I meant is that it just gains momentum. The sixth, seventh, and eighth episodes were super engrossing, you know?
2: Oh, okay. Um, Anthony, what do you think? Did you think that the end was as good as the rest of the show or not as good as the rest of the show?
1: Uh, I think I'm pretty much in full agreement with you where I don't think the end is, is bad, but but everything that sort of comes after the um, the gun being tossed away is not – didn't completely work. I, I wasn't crazy about it. Um, yeah. How about Sarah?
3: I had trouble believing Stuart's actions. Um, I yeah. feel like, you know, he was sort of this – the moral compass for lack of – you know, for lack of a better term, um, on the team, he was kind of the one who kept, uh, quoting poetry, you know, and they used Yeats and Philip Larkin and all sorts of, uh, poets and, and, and he was always sort of the, the, the mouthpiece for that. And he was, they literally talked with the kid, um, you know, Lyndon. Um, about the differences between generations and, you know, well, you don't know anything about, you know, social justice. Well, you don't know anything about Coltrane or Bach, that kind of thing. Um, and I loved their conversations, by the way, but I feel like it just wasn't quite fitting with his character. Like, I understand why they want us to think it was fitting in with his character, but it felt like a bit of a cheat for me um, just because I think in 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 some ways he would have had to receive information just prior. Like he would have had to learn about Lyndon's death um and immediately knew that it was related or something for him to feel like, yes, I want to kill both of these characters. And also, unless he saw a version of this multiverse that they didn't see and knew that she was going to throw away the gun, that's a very fast choice to make. Like he huh. just – immediately went from A to Z with no real time in between to make that decision. And so there's you know you kind of have to believe or agree to sort of gloss over that those bits because if you think about it too hard you're like, ah it yeah. doesn't really mash up with the character. No,
2: I completely agree with that. And also his stated reason as I remember it is the project has to be stopped. And then the project doesn't stop; it just keeps going after that. So right. uh, the whole thing seemed weird to me. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Interesting little side note about uh, the poem he was quoting from Yeats. It's actually called "The Second Coming," which I, I just love little you know easter eggs like that or details. You know, you know, how Garland's always really thinking about it.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um. But real quick,
4: uh, to Sarah's point about the multiverse versus the simulation, which we were discussing a moment ago, uh, I did have one question because it seems like he was kind of having his cake and eating it too. When they upload into the simulation, we saw multiple versions. So there was even a multiverse within that. You know, he said some would be more hell-like or hellish. I found that that was really dark and interesting. And I didn't entirely know what they meant by that. But what did, what did you think?
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm not sure. I mean, I, I. I do. I do sort of wonder if, um, you know, this should have been, you know, the, the thriller stuff at the beginning should have been simplified a little bit, and then a little more time spent mm-hmm. on the on the simulation stuff at the end, because it did seem to kind of come in very quickly at the end and leave a lot of unanswered questions. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I don't. Does anyone have any more thoughts on the hellish, <laughs> the hellish simulations? I I don't really know what to make of that.
4: Because, yeah, it seemed like Lily had been uploaded uh, multiple times and there were versions of her that
1: were going to have a shitty life. <laughs> that was pretty dark. Right, because they, they do, throughout the series, kind of allude to the fact that not only, so not only is he invested in this sort of deterministic model, but I guess specifically that, that there's only sort of one outcome possible, which again is partly about his own guilt. And, and that he's very opposed to the idea of incorporating this like multiverse model into the devs project itself. And so we do know that there is that in some ways this multiverse model is in the system. Although what exactly that means is never fully explicated. So I, I don't, yeah, I, I get the sense that there just must be a lot of different universes in devs by the end. But when that happens, how that fits in with this sort of purely uh deterministic script that we've seen so far i i don't know
2: so another thing i want to go back to is is there's this idea that i mean this show is clearly um critical of silicon valley tech culture uh there's a lot of lines about that Uh, they think they're messiahs um, Stuart says he doesn't like such being, such big decisions being made about our future by people who know so little about our past. Um, I was just wondering, like, um, like Anthony and Sarah in particular, like, do you think that, th- do you think this is a fair critique of Silicon Valley and do you have any idea how it's been received? In oh, God, Silicon yes. Valley?
3: I mean, I don't know how it's, how it's been received, but I, I do know that one common thread, um, about, you know, the sort of tech culture when I was there, particularly among the startup culture, is this idea of disrupting systems that exist. You know, whether it's disrupting airlines or disrupting, you know, uh, razor blades. So instead of going to Target and buying razor blades that were bought by Target and there's this middleman, you get them directly from the manufacturer, that kind of thing. And so there's all of these little industries that have popped up with startup culture around that concept of, of rejecting an existing system in, in place of a new one. Um, and one of the things that I found, and you know, I was really excited about it at first. And then I realized that so many of these tech, uh startup people were trying to disrupt industries without actually learning what made them fail or what what uh they were like in the first place. I mean I, I originally moved out from from New York to California to join a startup um that was in the education sector. And the owner, the um CEO, was twenty one years old and he had not had any normal jobs. He didn't work at a frozen yogurt shop at a mall yet. You know, he, he didn't do all of this standard upbringing stuff. Um, and the two people who knew the most about, about the school system and about what's wrong with, with, with it and what's right were the two people who were asked to leave. Um, and, you know, so it was kind of this fascinating thing. And this is a pattern that I saw over and over again where somebody would say, well, we're going to disrupt this industry. But they would actually do no research to learn what it was about that industry that was unsuccessful, what it was that made it unappealing. And I was fascinated by that hubris, you know. And so we see that over and over and over again. And, you know, he he uh the Stuart character in, you know, trying to say, In, in his last, one of his last scenes where he is asking, uh, Forrest, you know, I want you to guess at least who, who wrote that, who said that quote that I'm, I'm repeating to you. And Forrest didn't even try because he didn't acknowledge that that stuff was important. So I feel like that, all of that was very intentional and I, I really loved it.
2: Well, and this is, he's, uh, Stuart is quoting a poem and he says, can you even guess who wrote this poem? And yeah. uh, Forrest can't even guess. I, 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 My impression was it was less that he's indifferent to this whole subject than that it's just he doesn't know the names of any poets and couldn't even hazard a guess. And that's sort of the point that Stuart's making, you know, it's like you can't even, you know, I think. And then one of them says, right. like, is it Shakespeare? I think um, Katie says, is it Shakespeare? <laughs> it's obviously not Shakespeare. Like, if you know, you know anything about poetry, it's obviously not Shakespeare, right? right? So No,
3: not at all. And he was um, just like, "Oh yeah, it must have been Shakespeare that he was quoting earlier. I <laughs> love that part. that was such a meta joke
4: <laughs> especially since um, most viewers would probably think it was Shakespeare
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, well, maybe but not I viewers think... of 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 of, uh, of this particular show, but viewers in general yes
2: yeah. I, but I think one of the things I really like about this show is the, or just this this whole setup is that the um the the villainy is very thematically linked to the story right i mean like so like every story basically involves some like evil corporation or something but i was thinking of this like in contrast to the pelican brief which is the um uh, i don't remember exactly the details but it's something like uh, a, a, an oil company assassinates this supreme court justice in order to make more money selling oil which is like a perfectly good thriller story but um there's nothing there's no necessary relation between you know, the Supreme Court and and oil or whatever, I, I, it might be something else. But you know, like, it's just, it could be anything. And in this story, it has to be a tech company. And it has to be a tech company that's um, obsessed with collecting data. And that really resonates with people because we're all like, Oh, my God, these tech companies, they're just sucking up all the data. And what are they doing with the data? And they've got too much data. And that's exactly what's what this story expresses in a science fiction way. It's just like, it's so much data, they can see the future of the past, but it's that exact same idea that's, that, that is in the real world. It's just like multiplied by a hundred.
1: Right. And I mean, I think one of the things that the show acknowledges about that, that um, I wish it had gotten into more, which is, I was already alluding to this earlier, is that these tech companies have all this data. And on the one hand, that's really scary on its own but there's this other element of sometimes i think we talk about them in this very godlike way and this very infallible way as if like what facebook knows about you and what google knows about you is 100% accurate and you know that they know you better than you know yourself and i don't think that's true at all i think a lot of what they think about you and what they assume about you is completely inaccurate and um, i felt like that was nodded towards but i would have liked to see more of that in the show
2: in terms of the dev system being Turning out to be flawed or something,
1: right? Exactly that. That um, yeah. That that just just that Lily in her final action, but you know, potentially in other ways, that the, the system just that that maybe everything is you know predictable, but that doesn't mean our our computer can predict it.
2: Do you have any sense, Anthony, of whether people in Silicon Valley are like 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 because there's there was this big turn where I feel like everybody basically idolized them. 10 years ago or something. And at some point there was a big turn where most, if not almost all people kind of hate them. And do you have (laughs) like a sense of like how how they feel about the fact that they're now the villain
1: villains in shows like devs rather than the heroes? I, I think one of the things that's important to acknowledge is the fact that when we talk about silicon people in Silicon Valley, I think mostly what we're talking about are People like the forests of, of the world, the people who actually run these companies, who found these companies, maybe the venture capitalists who write checks, funding them. I think that, um, the, if you go, if you go to a company like Google, um, I mean, I mean, I'd be curious what Sarah thinks about this, but if you go to a company like Google or Apple or Facebook, once you start working your way down the ladder, I think that, um, it's a lot more representative of the general population, which is to say there are some people who take these issues very seriously. There are people who take them less seriously. Um, there are people who think these problems can be solved exclusively by technology. There are people who think, you know, who acknowledge that there's probably, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And, and so, you know, I, I think that sometimes it can be a little bit just of a simplification to say, this is what the Silicon Valley mindset is, because I don't think that's, it's, it's not the monoliths that we, that we necessarily want it to be, but, and, and I do think that to the extent that a Google or a Facebook right now is trying to get better, some of that is because, you know, there's a self-interested component of just, there's a lot of political and, you know, regulatory pressure to, to improve in certain ways. But I think a lot of that also comes from their employees, that there are people at Google and Facebook and, and Apple that want their companies to do better on these issues and are becoming increasingly vocal about that.
3: Yeah, I think it was really captured well by the uh, senator character in one of the beginning episodes uh, where she says, you know, she's trying to basically say she could basically destroy him with, you know, the right uh, panel on government, uh, governmental oversight or something. And she says, you know, about consumers, they use you, they need you, but they don't like you anymore. And it was, uh, you know, sort of perfect encapsulation of what of what uh, Anthony just said of of how we used to see them maybe 10 years ago versus how we see them now. And I think people are a little bit more aware that, you know, people like Zuckerberg got lucky. He didn't have some grand vision. He was literally making the most teenage boy app that a teenage boy could make. And just, you know, it was one of those right places at the right time that had been Mm -hmm. made many times before. And his version just had these unique qualities that people were ready for at that time. And now that it's grown into its own monolith, it has just as many, if not far more problems that like MySpace had, for instance, 15 years ago. But People feel like because it's a monopoly now that they're trapped. I am only on Facebook because the majority of my friends live in different states and different countries than me. That is the only reason. If they, if there was some other way to follow their lives as a collective, I would not be on Facebook. I would delete my account. And so we, you know, there's a sense that we need these companies, but nobody likes them anymore.
2: I want to get Rafael back in here um Raphael I noticed that this was this show was eighty percent on Rotten Tomatoes, which seems low to me. Did mm-hmm. you um pay any attention to the reviews or like how what what sort of responses the show got?
4: I did yeah um overall especially with my friends too, I saw in general you know. There's a tendency to want to like anything from Alex Garland, and most people were along for the ride. But I do think the negatives that consistently came up were the aforementioned pacing, and also the performances and the dialogue and the plotting, which sounds like a lot. Um, <laughs> right. I, I mean, the show overall, it, it's got this amazing visual look and this austere vastness, and the, the score is really, like the chanting, it's, it's hypnotic, and it's haunting. It's really cool. But um, we already touched on the plotting issues. I think too much of the thriller aspect, not enough of the big ideas being fleshed out. I was reading an article in the New York Times, and they said it better than I could. Just the show's cerebral tone is matched by its performances, you know, which are intense and detached. And they fit the stylized cool of the direction, but it doesn't give the viewer much to uh, hold on to, especially in the focal character. I, I saw a lot of friends that said they just couldn't get into the show because of the lead performance. And I don't think it's a, an, an indictment of the actress. I think she was just doing exactly what Garland wanted her to do. Um mm-hmm. What's interesting is she was also an ex machina in that amazing dance scene. Um, so you, there's obviously a lot more to her, but she was told to be very deliberate and methodical. And some of those conversations, uh, my, my girlfriend is an actor and she basically was impressed at how monotonic and deliberate they were being, which is actually difficult to some extent. Like they were barely moving through a lot of that dialogue, like that excellent scene with the pen and describing what Devs actually is between Katie and Lily. But I do think that made it like a harder entry point for a lot of casual viewers and even some sci-fi aficionados.
2: Right. It seems like that made a lot of sense for the, the, the lack of affect for Forrest and Katie because they kind of know everything that's going to happen and they're heading toward their doom and there's, they feel like there's nothing they can do about it. And so this, this lack of emotional affect makes perfect sense to me. Um, I agree. It doesn't quite make as much sense to me with Lily, but, um, but Sarah, what do you think about that?
3: Well, I, I just, I think it. you know, this is going to sound like a snotty thing to say, but I feel like at a certain point, if a show gets an 80%, it's a higher indication of quality than if it gets a hundred percent because when you have something you know that 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 doesn't appeal to everyone, that's a really good thing and it's one of the things that makes this show, not look like every other show. I mean, even you know we we are obviously in the middle of a explosion of creativity in terms of sort of the second golden age of television, or whatever it's being called right now. There's just so many more creative things happening in television than they are happening in film. And uh, I think in part that comes with you know the the flexibility of having to tell an eight hour story versus a two hour story. But so to me, it's you know, all of those things that he mentioned were, were features, not bugs.
4: Well, you know, and that's a really good point too, Sarah, is that uh, Rotten Tomatoes especially, something that's mostly harmless can register a 98%. Just all that means is that everyone liked it more than they didn't. But something that's really intelligent, but divisive, might only score 70 or an 80%, but it's a much better product.
3: Yeah.
2: I just feel like, like, Rotten Tomatoes aside, just my completely uninformed impression is that this show didn't get the sort of success that it deserves and Mm -hmm. I, i just worry what that portends for other smart like like the willingness to of people to do other intellectual um artsy science fiction shows going forward you know
4: I think, honestly, um, I've noticed there's a trend, uh, six episodes on a lot of Netflix and Amazon shows, it almost seems to be a sweet spot sometimes. I think this show was just a little bit too long for what it needed to be, because ultimately I think it clocked in around six hours, over eight hours, or eight episodes, but if it had just been four hours, just essentially a really long film, I think that was probably the sweet spot.
2: I mean, Anthony, what do you think about, like, do, did this show, how successful external metrics do you think the show was?
1: I mean, it it is hard to say, you know, because all of these streaming services don't really, uh, when they release audience numbers, it's incredibly selective. Um, so it's hard to to have any kind of apples to apples comparison. I would say anecdotally, my sense is similar to the rest of you that it had positive, but not overwhelmingly positive reviews. It hasn't necessarily stirred up a ton of conversation. It's, it feels like sort of pretty much uh predestined to be a sort of a cult mm-hmm. show um and um I you know and and I'm sort of torn about that in the sense that I I sort of agree with Sarah in the, the sense that it feels like I mean I think there are flaws and and certainly I I do agree that that Lily in some ways is maybe the the least interesting character in the show or can't quite support the weight of everything that's built around her and and again I don't think that has anything to do with the performance from from Sonoya Mazuno who I think is amazing in a a number of different things um but i i also think that even the tighter version of this with a slightly more compelling central character is still not a show for everyone and i think that's okay and i and i would hope that fx knew that that's what they were getting Uh, i don't know if that's the case but but on some level i don't think that that even if the flaws were fixed this would be a show that everyone would love
4: no definitely not i mean it's a really cerebral show and uh you know, I mean, I don't think they ever intended to do another season anyway. It's listed as a limited show. So it's probably just one and done. And that's great. I mean, I, I wish we would get more stuff like that. Um, and I think honestly, in terms of watching that first episode, it might have been tricky for some people to even get through that one because they, they kind of trick you. You think Sergey is the main character at first and it turns out to be Lily. And that, that's definitely throwing a little bit. Um, but you know, as long as you stick with it, it is rewarding. But yeah.
2: Yeah, I think this was definitely always intended to be one season because Alex Garland has said he's his next show, he's already sort of on to the next show, which uh he says from what I gathered is a is I think he said it's about civil disobedience in the present, it's not science fiction, but that it's with the same cast as Devs, that he he like loved wow. working with this cast so much that he's just kind of bringing them onto his next show. Um Well, I think the
4: cult of Garland will continue to grow. I mean, anything he puts out will definitely register a certain amount of attention, and his fans are going to keep eating it up, mostly.
2: Yeah, and I mean, he's just such an interesting. I mean, because obviously, I listen. You know, I do a lot of interviews, and then I also listen to a lot of interviews for this podcast. And I was just listening to an interview, a new interview with Alex Garland, just this morning, and it's so interesting. He's so you know thoughtful and. Uh, and self deprecating and, uh, you know, interesting in so many ways. And, um, you know, I just, uh, yeah, I just wish, wish it it just, I just get the impression that, like, so all his projects, like, there's some, you know, something goes wrong. Uh, and I, I wish that wasn't the case because, uh, you know, because he is such a singular talent, but, um, yeah, actually, I, I'll just mention this. Uh, this interview I watched. It was on Lex Friedman's YouTube channel. And just uh, after you finish listening to this, go check it out because it's it's just a terrific interview. Um, so, uh, I don't know. Any uh, Anthony, any more thoughts on Alex Garland or directions he might go from here or anything like that?
1: No, I mean just to reiterate, I, I love this show. I mean, I think it it's um, despite some some you know, real shortcomings. I, I think it's it's not like anything else I've seen on television. Um, and as much as it sounds like Garland has had some struggles and, and challenges in his career, and I, there, I do like to imagine an alternate universe where he's, <laughs> you know, a Christopher Nolan level success. The fact that he gets to continue to do work like this that doesn't feel compromised in any way is itself a pretty amazing achievement. So hopefully that'll continue.
2: Yeah, definitely this show feels like he just did it exactly the way he wanted with no, you know, no compromises or, you know, nothing to make it appeal to a lowest common denominator or just or anything like that. Um All right, so I think we're pretty much pretty much done. So, like Sarah, do you have any any final thoughts here?
3: I uh just wanted to defend the Lily Chan character. It was surprising to me that um that people had any issues with that, just because to me, she felt like such a real person that I would have known, you know, in Silicon Valley. And she reminded me of so many uh, women that I know there that, you know, I, I think also growing up, especially, you know, in the 80s and 90s, you, you know, I will never, ever tire of seeing a female character who is taken seriously who is not you know the actress herself is absolutely gorgeous you know she was she was a ballerina um and a model i think and she is she was in a music video (laughs) and you know they i think in the hands of somebody else i'm so used to thinking oh man in the hands of somebody else she would have been a megan fox character Mm. who was implausibly a computer engineer and you know made up made up just for the sake of making her up for no reason. And she was, you know, basically in baggy clothes, and she had short hair, and she had no makeup on that, you know, that we could perceive as the audience. And she was just a real person to me. And I will never tire of seeing that because I was so starved of it. And women in general have been so starved in it. And I really respect Garland uh, for, you know, kind of Making that the priority, even with something with ex machina, you know, that could have easily had so many more creepy, uh, undertones, uh, of women's, um, you know, exploitative quality. And yet, even though they, it's a literally a movie about, you know, these women who ultimately are sex bots, they are given so much agency and, and character and, uh, Realist, and it's just such a refreshing thing to see. So I really love the character of Lily Chan.
2: Yeah, I agree. She seems like someone who you know you might meet who works at a, a tech company. Um, and so did Stewart and Lyndon, for that matter, and for yeah. I mean, all the all the people they seem like you know they don't seem like the Hollywood version, right? Or I mean, maybe in some senses. But they, I, I'm like, oh yeah, I know, I know people like that. You know? Yeah. Um, so. I definitely thought she and Allison Pill were the highlights
4: for me. I mean, that one scene that you mentioned earlier, when they're sitting at the table and and Katie is laying out what Devs is, and you know, basically Lily is like, "So you killed my boyfriend," and she's like, "Yes," <laughs> you know, she just owns it. And that was a really fascinating conversation. I had to watch it twice.
2: Um, I guess I'll just we didn't. I don't think we mentioned Jamie. Um the character, but who I, I mean I guess we you know he's um Lily's uh, ex-boyfriend you know before Sergey and mm-hmm. I'll just mention I, I know I, we didn't really talk about Kenton either who's and they're all like a, such amazing characters, but there's this scene where um Kenton, who's this like ex CIA guy was the sense I got is is basically torturing um Jamie to to get him to not um pursue his investigation anymore. And like it's just, and it's such a horrifying scene. And and after that, I was just like, okay, like if if that was me in Jamie's place, I just be like, I'm out, I'm done. You know, <laughs> whatever you want, I'm not investigating this anymore. You know, <laughs> yes, sir. And and just the fact that he, you see him like immediately. You know, he's undeterred. Us like, holy shit, this character has some real uh, guts here.
3: Yeah, I love that he just, you know, his response to being tortured is, okay, fuck you, still going to rescue her from the hospital. Like, that was absolutely beautiful to me. And we didn't even talk about, we didn't talk about the homeless guy. We didn't talk about the whole Russian subplot. So Yeah. yeah, I, <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> Jamie There's just a lot, character. a lot to
3: this show.
4: And uh, that even that, that scene between him and Kenton was a very good scene. I mean, all of mm-hmm. a sudden Kenton is, they're just kind of hanging out. He's just sitting there talking about, Tiananmen Square and I was like wow this is really interesting <laughs> you don't see this very often from essentially the muscle
2: yeah and, and so and Pete the um, the homeless guy who lives in front of uh, Lily's building turns out to be a Russian agent and stuff yeah there, there's all sorts of stuff we didn't, didn't really get to but I mean you know if you haven't seen the show you know you can um, actually I shouldn't have spoiled that I guess for if you haven't seen the show but um, um, but yeah I mean there's, there's just a lot to this show and uh Yeah, there's a lot to like. I mean, like I said, the ending, um, I think maybe could have been done a little bit differently. But it's just such a good show overall. And I really want people to support smart science fiction like this because I always want more of this.
4: Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Um, All right. And so let's uh, let's, uh, wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Anthony Ha, Sarah Lynn Mishner, and Raphael Jordan. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us.
3: Always a pleasure.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Thank you, David. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Anthony Ha, Sarah Lynn Mishner, and Raphael Jordan for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of
1: Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit GeeksGuideShow.com. To learn more about your host, visit DavidBarKurtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it,
0: tell no one.
3: Thank you for listening.